Welcome to the Cocktail Lovers Podcast. I'm Gary. And I'm Sandra. And together, we are the Cocktail Lovers. We're a married couple and we've been writing about cocktails for the past 14 years. But this is a place where we talk about cocktails. We'll be talking about products, we'll be talking about books, and talking about the bars that we love and we think that you'll love too. We'll also be checking in with some of the biggest names in the drinks world and asking them for their top tips to help you up your mixing game at home. We like to think of ourselves as your new best friends, cocktail-wise. So let's hear what's on the show this week. If you're a black African-American, June 19th is probably circled in your diary. For the rest of us, it may not be a big deal. For the record, June 19th, or Juneteenth as it's known, is a recognised holiday in the US, commemorating the emancipation of enslaved African Americans. Issued on June 19th, 1865, and first celebrated in churches in Texas in 1866, Juneteenth became a federal holiday in the US in 2021. So with that in mind, we're focusing on black-owned drinks businesses, including Uncle Nearest 1884 Small Batch Whiskey from Tennessee and One True Maverick, a triple distilled vodka, also from the South, but in this case, deepest South London. We uncover the ideal bartender, the first cocktail book written by a black bartender, Tom Bullock, and head over to Sly Gustine's award-winning Trailer Happiness in Notting Hill. Finally, we chat to Tamika Hall about her book, Black Mixellence, to hear about some of the amazing stories she encountered whilst writing it, as well as giving us an insight into how Juneteenth is commemorated in the States. But first, we are the cocktail lovers, so let's make ourselves a cocktail. Okay, it's a bit hot out there, isn't it? It is. We like it. We do like it. It's unusual. So we're appreciating the hot weather. And with that in mind, the cocktail I'm going to make is very much about cooling off. Right. So this actually comes from somebody uh, who is actually a friend of ours, Ms. Frankie Marshall, Mm -hmm. who is a modern bartender and educator based in New York. Lovely. So we don't normally necessarily ask people for recipes. We just source them or what we fancy yeah but i think we can look to that maybe in our next season we should have a look at doing that i think that's a good idea Mm. actually so yeah in this case we asked frankie if she's got a nice cocktail for to cool down and she's come back with something called v and t's that's t-e-a-s-e v and t's and it's very simple so i'm going to crack straight into it we love simple drinks by the way don't we I do, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know I do. Sorry, I was dozing <laughs> off there for a second. But yeah, we do love simple <laughs> drinks. And particularly for the summer, you don't want to be messing around with lots of ingredients and labour-intensive drinks. So mm. something very crushable is is a good idea. And that's exactly what this is. So you will have noticed while you were chit-chatting there that I was filling up a couple of rocks glasses with mm. some ice. And this is basically two types of vermouth, mainly. So into each glass over the ice, I'm going to pour 44. I know you like your exact measurements. Wow, that is very, very. 44. 44 mils. Yeah, 44 mils. Now, the reason for that is that Frankie, when she sent the recipe over, very kindly converted 
US fluid oh, dances. Oh, right, yes. And she's converted them exactly. So I am making sure I'm measuring them exactly. So what was that? 44 mils of what? So first of all, I put in 44 mil of Blanco vermouth. Right. Which is a slight, not a sweet vermouth, but a slightly sweeter mm-hmm. white vermouth. And 40 ml of dry vermouth. So equal measures of dry and Blanco so this is a, a sort of lighter style refreshing drink. Very, very mm, light. Okay. And with that in mind, I'm just opening, hang on, there it goes, opening up some tonic water. All of these, are, by the way, have been in the fridge. I mean, obviously the vermouth should be stored in the fridge, mm. and it has been. Once you've opened it, Absolutely. always store in the yeah. fridge. And then I'm just topping each one with 60 ml of tonic. So that's nice and simple. So we've got two types of a move, tonic, and last couple of things. Uh, you can use a melon baller if you own such a thing, which we don't. So I'm using a teaspoon and just putting in a generous teaspoon of lemon sorbet. Ah, oh, we did that in our last uh, <laughs> last episode, which I'm is good. So you, you wait all year for a sorbet based drink and then two come along at once don't they but they're very different drinks so i've got that in now just giving it a, just a little stir make sure that everything's right and the sorbet is starting to dissolve nicely and lastly i'm just popping in a little sprig of rosemary give it a little bit of herbaceousness and you can if she said if you like you can put a drop of chili oil on the sorbet we're not doing that but Mm. you know why not give it a try sometime so there you are and let's do a quick cheers v and teas thank you frankie So because we're talking about Juneteenth and the importance of black mixology or black bartenders and people who contributed to the spirits industry, because people don't always think of black people having had much history in the drink sphere. So one of the products that I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking about today, it's a whiskey and it's called Uncle Nearest. And it is named after Nathan Nearest Green, who Mm -hmm. is the person that is responsible for teaching or mentoring Jack Daniels. Yes, Jack Daniels. Really? Here's the person that taught him everything he knew about distilling and making whiskey. So it's one of the people that is has just started to come to the forefront now in the past, I would say, sort of five, ten years or something. And that's down to an amazing woman called Fawn Weaver, who's a a serial entrepreneur. But she stumbled across this story of Nathan Green and the importance that he had in, in the whiskey category. And she spent 12 months researching the whole thing and she's uncovered more than 10,000 original artifacts and documents from five different states to actually do the research on this. So she's worked with 20 historians, all sorts of amazing people. And then in 2019, she founded this company, Uncle Nearest, and it's a black-owned female-led company. As I said, started in 2017, actually. But in 2019, she was joined by Victoria Edie Butler, who's the great-great-granddaughter of Nearest Green. And wow. she's she is now the master blender of the company. So that's all the research. I yeah. mean, the research is amazing. And There's I'd a love whole to, lot more there. I'd love there? to do yeah. a whole yeah. lot on 
on it. But safe to say that this is, it's been really highly rewarded for yeah. the achievements. It is actually the most awarded American whiskey brand and the fastest growing independent whiskey brand in US history. So... No small potatoes, I must say. And it's received over 600 awards, including, listen to this, 394 gold medals. So that's, 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 isn't it? I just, I just love it. it. And I can't wait to taste it. Yeah, exactly. But we have to say a little bit more about Nearest Green because he was Jack Daniels, as I said, he was his mentor and teacher. And he was the first master distiller at the Jack Daniels distillery, uh, which at that time he was known as the head stiller. And also seven generations of the family worked for Jack Daniels. So it's just such a wonderful story. And I do want to delve into it a little bit more. And I hope at some point we'll do something in the magazine about it. Yes. And I would love to meet Fawn Weaver because she's doing some incredible things, including setting up a foundation and doing scholarships and all sorts of amazing things. So it makes me very excited. So now, shall we try? I think we the should. Whiskies? Yeah. We have the Uncle Nearest 1884, which is a small batch whiskey. And it says on the label, hand-selected by our founders. So I'll pass the bottle to yeah. you, Gary. What it's do you think? Lovely bottle. It's, um, it's all, I don't know, it's that sort of brick shape. And it's that they've struck a nice balance between it, it feeling kind of contemporary, but also it's got so the sort of typography and a little illustration there that also gives it a little bit of a heritage vibe. Mm. Very beautiful. Yeah. And Very another beautiful. thing I have to say about um, Nearest Green, while well, I'm pouring this beautiful looking amber liquid into our glasses, here's a person that is one of the people that's responsible for founding this Lincoln County process, which is a big thing in America. It's um, this distinction between Kentucky bourbon and Tennessee whiskey. So that's another big tip. That's another story as well. It just keeps on going. And also, another good thing to say, he was one of the wealthiest men of the area of any race and the wealthiest African-American in Lynchburg, Tennessee. So it's good to celebrate that as well. Isn't it great that that this name is now coming into our sphere? Exactly. So as we said, we're tasting the 1884. So what do we get on the nose? It smells amazing. It's, I mean, I don't know any of the details how this make, uh, mm. but this, it kind of hints of like sherry on the nose, which I always find welcoming. Lovely and smooth. Yeah, it's got this sort of um, mm, fruitiness cool. to it, actually. Yeah, oh, that's, oh, that's, it's so quite creamy, honeyed. Yeah. It's smooth. Kind of, I'd also say, say delicate for, yes. for, a, for a whiskey as yes. well. In a good way. Yeah. In a very good way. Lots of vanilla bit of spice there and also some sort of zestiness would you say mm. sort of citrus it's one of those um spirits as well that as ever we're tasting at room temperature and it's just you want to roll it around the mouth because mm. you want to savour it you got a lovely finish and there's no burn none at all none actually at all. which is fantastic so this is as i said the 1884 
and it's £55. And the other varietal, which is the 1856, is £65. I I absolutely love it. And the bottle itself does say premium, doesn't it? It's a really weighty bottle, big means business bottle, which I love. Um, And it's available from all good good, um, spirit stores around the world. And luckily, we now have it in the UK. So... Go out and buy it. And also, folks, please gen up on the history. That's Uncle Nearest, and we love it. We've been in the US. We're coming right back home now to London. In fact, South London. Okay. And a vodka, a vodka from South London. Brilliant. So we're we're doing black-owned businesses. Is this another black-owned business? It is indeed. Right. It's a vodka, and it's been created by a guy called James Luaga. Lovely. And as I say, from South London. So vodka from South London. That's mm. a story in Who itself. Would have... <laughs> you know, I'm excited about that. Yeah. And just very briefly, what I like when I was kind of just having a look around the website and stuff, they've kind of got this. I wouldn't say it's a manifesto, but I like their thinking. They say vodka is dead, long live vodka. And they go on to expo- talk about, you know, years of, you know, the bad press that mm. vodka got, and particularly things like serving it in the bottle with a sparkler. And, yes, yes. And they said they wanted to do everything that is... To get away from getting that. Getting away from that. I don't really, blame them. Yeah, me too. And create something really, really good, a really great vodka. So that's what they've done. They've created a vodka. It's made, actually, with a combination of potato, rye, and grape. Wow. So there's a lot going so on there. Yeah, every, everything that you could do, really, yeah. isn't it? So let's just talk about the bottle briefly okay. first. So it says to me, it says premium. It's lovely. Uh, what do you call that? A matte black yes, bottle. Yes, it's a matte black bottle with um, just some white type on the front. Very clean. Very. Incredibly I love the. I love the yeah. um, typography on this. So all you see is one true maverick vodka set against this lovely matte black background, which is super cool. It looks super cool. And so, as I say, it's uh, the potato, rye and grape. It's been triple distilled and then it is finally single pot distilled. So, wow, so it's gone through everything. Things. So I'm going to pull the cork. Oh, there it goes. That's a big one. That <laughs> and I'm going to give you my traditional. I don't want a big generous cork. measure. Yeah. Well, sorry, I've already poured it. <laughs> <laughs> Pass this over to you. There okay. You That's Lovely. one true Maverick vodka heading your way. Crystal clear. Lovely mm. on the nose. Very smooth. Mm. Very. Get the rye on the nose. Yeah, it's a nice bite of rye. Mm. I don't know. I can't say that it breaks down for me into grape and anything else, but yeah. definitely you get the, the yeah. bite of the rye. And also on the nose, it is, again, that sort of creaminess that we were talking mm. about with the lovely yeah. Uncle Nearest, but this is a different yeah. different and, type. Yeah, and I'm saying like rye on the nose, but what I meant, it's kind of got, it smells, the, the aroma hints of rye, that's what mm. I meant. Yeah. Now this, again, super smooth, mm. very, very easy. You know, there's no... Um, no glitch, no sort of sharp edges. There's, it just leads into this really ultra smooth, very warm, very silky vodka, I would yeah, say. Yeah, silky, that's a good word, mm. actually, yeah. It's um, very, very smooth. Again, also, I think there's a tiny bit of sweetness there, which yes. I, I really, really yeah, like. Yeah, there is a sweetness. Yeah. I think that's what makes it even smoother, in a way. It's very, 
very very easy going mm. isn't it really nice oh this is lovely i like mm. also I, I just want to very quickly say as well that they've done something great here they ran mm. a, a, a an idea last year called the maverick fund which was about uh, a prize to find people i guess young creative people within the drinks industry and support their creativity so they're doing oh, great, nice. great things as well wow love that so back to the bottle mm. um, as ever we're tasting this room temperature and i think we're both nodding at each yeah, other yeah really good we like this I, I definitely the funny thing is we tend to go for gin martinis but mm. i would definitely try this yeah in a, this would be lovely so what sort of price is it it is round about £36 for a 70cl bottle. And I should have said already that's 40% ABV. Yeah. And they've got some nice serves as well on their website. And one that jumped out at me called Midas, which has, uh, it's kind of a sour, you know, lemon juice, egg white, but also with apricot jam and mm. sage, which yes. I think could work really well. Give so that I'll a go. Give, the, give that a go. So that is one true maverick vodka from South London. And I think we're giving that a thumbs up. Absolutely. And now for a cocktail hack from one of our experts. My name's Thomas Lask, the co-founder of Black Rock and Whiskey Me. And my cocktail hack is to use up all of those first flush tea leaves that you've used. Now, I personally will re-brew cold um, my spent tea leaves, whether they're green or flavoured teas, and I'll use that, sometimes carbonated, as a mixer to my whiskey or to my vodka or to whichever spirit I'm drinking. So it makes a good use of leftover ingredients, it gets a secondary flavour, and it's also delicious as a soft drink as well. Here in Blighty, I have to say, there are not that many black-owned bars. And and it should be something that is put right, really. We have Acha, which is um, Dino Moncrief's bar, which we reviewed his lovely mirror margarita in our last episode. And then we have the amazing, quite fantastic, super extraordinary trailer happiness (laughs) (laughs) and it is i mean it is a it's got a great sort of history because it's been around it's on portobello road i should Mm, say in london and it's been around since 2003 i know we it it does kind of make me feel a bit old because we together we actually newsflash you are a bit old. (laughs) (laughs) well should i just add to that we went there together um Back pretty much when it opened. So uh, this yes. is somewhere we've known for a long, long time, yeah. 20 years. And so, I mean, in 2003, it was under a uh, different management. Yeah. But I think that it's gained... We loved it then, but I think that there's been a real resurgence since yeah. sly augustine who's actually we've had guested on on this we podcast did last series yeah yeah um so he took it over in 2012 i think yeah and really he's cool. really injected what trailer happiness is all about it's a good times feel good neighborhood community sort of bar yeah. i think and I've, I've put down a few words for this i've said informal inviting inclusive fun but the ultimate party bar i think that that's what it sums up yeah to me. i think you've covered off all the bases i think because <laughs> <laughs> it's right i'm not sure what i can add other than yeah i think it's like it, it for me it's about escapism mm, it's, it's definitely. a tiki, it's a tiki bar, tiki bar rum focus yeah and yes we're we're heading into summer so it kind of makes me think of tiki but this bar 
works equally well in the depths of winter because you go there and you escape yeah and it's a subterranean so you go downstairs so if you do go in the winter it's warm in it's fun it's fabulous but in the summer it's also warm in fun and fabulous you know so and it's one of those things particularly during the carnival because of where it is in west london it brings together all of that a fabulous, I would say even, you know, the sort of wind rushy type of thing. It reminds mm. me of that. It reminds me of Shabin's. It reminds yeah. me of oh, just good times, well, really. It's, it's funny you say that as well, because that's the thing that crossed my mind in a slightly different way. It's kind of, it's it's kind of got a tiki design. It's not too kitsch. You, know, mm. you can't do tiki without being a bit No, kitsch. you've got to have a um, little bit of your tongue in your cheek, yeah. haven't you? But I think also within that, when you step in there, the design and the furniture in particular, mm. it, it feels like you're kind of in someone's funky, slightly retro lounge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's very much about the intimacy. And I think that even if you just go on your own or you're in a couple, you would end up talking to other people because yes, it is sort of vibe, all about that. The bartender have their lovely tiki shirts you know hawaiian shirts and things and as we said it is very rum focused and rums from all over the place absolutely Um, but there are other other spirits too but i would definitely go for one of the rum based well the thing i think is it's got incredible rum selection which they invite you to sort of just try it out ask Mm. have a chat with the knowledgeable bartenders about rum and i think it's great if you're a rum fan Mm. go there because you can try different if you're a newbie to yeah. rum, go there and explore it. Yeah, exactly. And they have um, an array of daiquiris. There's about six daiquiris in their daiquiri selection. Yeah, yeah, including one, which we haven't tried, but I would love to. Maybe as a treat. They which have one? A, the the silver daiquiri, which is made with 1980s Havana Club silver dry. Yeah. So an original rum from, what is that, 40 odd years ago? Yeah, so. exactly. But it's only £25. So for a, a Yeah, treat, and that's I, the other I, thing. I that's quite good. The drinks for, are for very reasonable. Yeah. They yeah. also to have lots of sharing drinks so that is real crowd pleasers you know so yes i mean there's a what they call a colossal colada which yeah. is, you know, the words colada so, with, with colossal. colossal, hello, and it's for sh- a sharing drink for two. So I think we should go and share yeah, that. Yeah, they've um, also got a yeah. zombie that you yeah. can share with four or five, which and, is As great. you said, all the prices are good. The, 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 you know, I said about the silver daiquiri, which is a special one, but all the regular cocktails it's around about like 11. 11 to 14. Yeah, all the prices are good. The atmosphere is fantastic. And we definitely, definitely recommend Trailer Happiness, award-winning bar, and it's one of our faves. The brand new issue of the Cocktail Lovers magazine is available now. ABVs, anniversaries, age statements, percentages, three-seater and 300-plus high-volume bars. This is the numbers issue. To get your copy, set up a subscription or gift it in print or digital, visit thecocktaillovers.com slash magazine. For me, there could only be one book choice for this week, and it is The Ideal Bartender by Tom Bullock. Now, just in case you've not heard of Tom Bullock or The Ideal Bartender, Tom Bullock was actually the first African-American bartender to publish a cocktail book, and it was published in 1917. 
Oh, my goodness. Exactly. Incredible. So it was one of the last books just before Prohibition. So what is really good about this is that it gives you an idea of what the tastes and trends were pre-Prohibition. But also, you know, the fact that this got this was published by this celebrated bartender, and he really was, you know, he was born in Louisville, and he tended bar at places like the Pendennis Club and the Kenton Club and St. Louis Country Club. And one of the things that, I mean, the South has got, you know, some shaky past in, yeah. in, in lots of different ways. But one of the good things about it was that Black um, Americans were allowed to tend bars. So it meant that they actually had a higher status okay. in a way and were able to make money. And it was a really good way of some people, they, they earned their rights out of slavery by, by and tending bars. And it's a profession. great, absolutely yeah, respected yeah. profession. So and and to prove it um and to prove how highly esteemed he was regarded the foreword in this book was written by a really um prominent banker and businessman George H W Bush who is the grandfather of president George Bush oh. and so it also proved how respected he was yeah. so anyway let me let me yeah. pass you I love the book the format of this book mm. it's cuz it's 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 like i'm not going to say a manual but it feels like a nice little handbook it is a, yeah. a nice little pocket book now yeah. i have to say that the originals are out of print or they're oh, probably sure. circulating somewhere but what has happened with this book we have a facsimile edition which is published by the brilliant people at Cocktail Kingdom who have oh. done that with lots, oh, fantastic. Of, lots yeah. of different books. It's a Manhattan-based publisher and they have um, reproduced this, I think, well, a few years ago. I'm not quite sure how long. And we've got um, a foreword by our lovely friend Ian Burrell who sort of talks about how great um, Tom Bullock was and how he feels that having received the book as well. Um, There's about 100 or so recipes in there. A lot. Yeah, and they're listed in alphabetical order, not by spirit type, so you'll just find things all all over the place. No illustrations, but it's a lovely little keepsake book, Yeah, but two things I would say that jumped out at me about the look of the book Mm. after I said about the, the handbook quality one is uh because it is a facsimile the typography is of that time mm. and i really like that mm. kind of takes you back like the savoy cocktail yes. book, isn't it? Uh, and the other thing uh you were talking about uh, the gentleman and there's a lovely photograph of him yes and yes. so i think that brings it alive mm. to see this man just to see a photograph of him it yes takes you a little bit back there which i and it makes you quite emotional to it does it really that, really does it's, yeah. it's absolutely fantastic so it's available from Cocktail Kingdom, either cocktailkingdom.co.uk or cocktailkingdom.com. And it is priced at twenty two twenty five. And we, you know, I think this is one that everyone should I have. I agree. Tamika Hall is a freelance writer and content strategy manager. She has created editorial content and marketing strategies for the likes of The Vitamin Shop, The Examiner, StupidDope.com, Iconix and many more including Yellowbrick.co. 
And it was at Yellowbrick that she launched its editorial blog site and co-created the curriculum for the Hospitality and Tourism Industry Essentials online course with New York University's Jonathan Tisch Center of Hospitality. As well as writing branded content for a wide variety of high-profile names, including Bacardi, Maker's Mark and PepsiCo, she has co-authored Black Mixellance with Colin Asaya Appiah. Tamika, welcome to the Cocktail Lovers podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's so lovely to meet you. So Tamika, congratulations on the book. It really is fantastic. And I love the title. Tell us how the project came about. So I have a friend of mine who's a fellow author. She got wind of a project and they were looking for someone to, I guess, answer the pitch for what the topic called for. And so initially it was a book that just featured black mixologists, but I kind of tweaked it a bit and added the historical factor to the beginning after interviewing a lot of the mixologists and realizing that they all had a story to tell. And it would be great to put not only their story in the book, but their custom cocktails as well. So because we did this book during the pandemic, while we were able to get the cocktail shot to go around and shoot all of the mixologists was impossible because at the time we were sort of at a standstill. And so maybe in the future, we will see their stories or hear from them, or we'll come up with another way to incorporate them into the this part of the book. But we gave you the best part. Well, one of the best parts, the cocktails, the recipes and the history in the book. But you know, I mean, I know that you said that the, you did it in lockdown. In actual fact, that sometimes works in your favor, because people have more time. So that must have been quite good as well. Well, I was doing homeschool because my kids were home. I was working from home. So it was really just something else to do to buy the time because we were all home mm. for that length of time. So I was like, well, instead of sleep, maybe I'll just do this. <laughs> and so that was really the, that was what I was shortening because I, I wasn't going outside. So yeah, but it worked. The thing is, we you know, we've been looking at the book a lot and there's clearly a lot of research gone into it. I mean, how long did it actually take to do the research and to write it? Well, the funny part is a lot of the stuff even that we found upon research, we left out because you really have to trail the work and trail what you're reading and the stories because some of it was not consistent, right? And then you don't want to include some things that we kind of hit a block with the fact-checking part. So we excluded some of that. And then we basically just went with some of the things to sort of pique people's interest. So the story of Bertie Brown, where it speaks to a Black woman who was very engaged during Prohibition. She had a bed and breakfast, but she was also making moonshine. And so we figured that would be a great way to highlight women in mixology, which is another voided area aside from Black mixologists or Black and Brown mixologists. But women in mixology is also... The information there is very deficient and the women play a major role just as the men do or did, but they also played a major role in how a lot of things happen. So potentially that's a second book. Who knows? But I think that's a second book. Right, right. So we really just tried to keep it the stories that were most we most came across that we found the most information about and we were able to fact check most thoroughly in regards to the information that we were putting in the book. There are more, 
And what often happens is a lot of times people say they read the history in the book and then they went off and started looking for other things. And that's really ideally what I want people to do. I don't want to tell you everything. Exercise your right to explore, you know, go to the library. Now we have Google. I used to go to the library when I was little. Like my kids know nothing about that little card <laughs> library <here>. thing. <laughs> we flipping do. Through, <laughs> flipping through microfiche and just the smell of like an old reference book. They know nothing about that. But just trying to get people back into the habit of tracing back stories and their history and why certain things are happening. So we kind of gave them a taste. We gave readers a taste, hoping they would go back and really start digging deeper for their own good and maybe eventually write their own book, you know, on how they see the history and mixology and how it affects current culture. So how many of the stories did you know about any of them before you started on the book? Nope. So Uncle Nearest started peaking like a year or two before we wrote the book. So I knew a little about that. The Minjulip, I used to do branded content for a spirits company. And for what I knew, because I always covered the Kentucky Derby or items or things around the Kentucky Derby. So I initially thought that the mint julep was, that's where it started. Like, because that's where the history starts. It's like the mint julep is the derby drink and so on and so forth. And so, you know, you just place it as starting at the derby not knowing, or I didn't know that it started even way before then and that Black mixologists really brought it back to life and made it pop in the bars and that's what they were serving. And I was like, oh shit. I was like, I had no idea. So now that's super interesting, right? So now that's why I put that story specifically in the book because that's one I definitely didn't know. That's one I knew but didn't know. Once I did the research, I learned a little more. And then I did know about Bertie Brown. I didn't know about the Black mixologist. Like, I had no idea that these things were happening in history. So it was really interesting for me. As I found these things, I was like, oh, this. And just kind of going off and seeing. Like, I heard stories. I knew about Tom Bullock. And, you know, storytelling in the Black culture is something that we've been doing for years. Not being able to read and write as slaves, we relied on word of mouth and storytelling to a hold space for, you know, family stories or B, just continue to keep the culture alive. So a lot of things like where I knew, I heard, but I wasn't factually sure, did that really happen? Like, I don't know if it was true or not. So doing the research on a lot of it was the cement that let me know that these things really happen and they're a part of history. So you hear them like in passing, but like other things, you're just like, eh, sounds like it could have happened, but you don't really know for sure if it did or if it didn't. I mean, it must. It sounds like even just from the few examples you've already given, there's like, there must have been so many surprises every time you sort of delved a little bit deeper. What was the most surprising thing you learned, do you think? So I think for me, it was the tie into slavery as a service industry and mixology as an as the industry it is now. So learning that you know, slavery was a service industry, right? So you'd have to think that we were rooted in serving and creating for people from back then, but as a service, it was mandatory. Something we had to do because it was part of our, where our life was at the time. And even one further, rum creation and like the sugar cane and all of those things were rooted 
in slave work and servitude. So some of the slaves took what they learned in that space and how they were doing that space and use it to actually start businesses or create a space where they could buy their freedom. So that's entrepreneurship early, you know, before it was deemed entrepreneurship, right? So that for me, I never made the connection that the two were sort of like the same. And so it would only make sense that we had a presence there. So that's really what started, what piqued my interest in like, okay, let me go see what else is happening. Because if that was a thing and we were doing that, there has to be, you know, if Uncle Nearest was this master distiller and he taught, you know, Jack Daniels how to distill. And I say that because the story that they tell and the story in my mind, I feel like how it played out are two very different scenarios. Because we've actually previewed Uncle Nearest in this episode as well. So tell me how the two work in your mind. So I feel like they say that Uncle Nearest taught Jack Daniels how to distill. And I don't think it was a taught, given the fact that we really didn't have the space for people to ask us to do things. I think it was just something that was taken and used. That seems more appropriate than saying like it was this friendship and he taught him how to do this and so he sent him to go sell his recipe like however they decide to present how it came to be that's completely on the brand and that's great but in my 49 years of living I know that things don't shake out that way and even when you pitch a concept in a meeting someone's going to go and steal it and run with it if they feel like they can do better so I say that to say I feel like that's how it happened And they're just not giving it, you know, they don't want to make it, let's not make it seem like it was bad, but it is what it is. Like, it's not so much that it's bad, like that's what it is. And you can't sugarcoat it because you want it to look nice. You know what I'm saying? I would prefer to know the honest truth or you tell me that's how it happened versus trying to sell me some sugarcoated story about, yes, they learned and he taught him and he went off and no. But it's also, it's a good thing anyway, because it brings it to people's attention. And, you know, no one knew about him before. So that's the good thing about this. So that's what I love to celebrate, which is right. fantastic. I'm not saying, and I'm I'm grateful that the story has emerged mm. and I'm happy for that. But then you also have to be mindful. Like when you're telling these stories, do you want to tell them from a perception of, actual factual or do you want to make it so that it's just the story is out there and we know that Uncle Nearest was the catalyst for this brand but we want to make it nice and not confrontation like it's a really weird it's a weird space so as a writer I want to just tell the truth like this is what happened but I also understand the consumer aspect of it and maybe you don't want to put it out there because now as we are today the brand would definitely catch, they would catch, a, you know, it would backfire on them and potentially boycott and whatever. So I understand that part. So that's what I mean when I say that part. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I totally get you. Are there any other stories that you think that the world needs to know a bit more about, you know, because I think all of this should be on the curriculum as well. But what do you think? What would you pick out as something that people need to know a bit more about? I just think the importance of the Black Mixologist Club and how they supported Black mixologists, how many Black mixologists had businesses and open bars or attempted to open bars, and some of the 
I guess, inequities they faced. I guess rum and just its importance to culture on a whole. You have to think Caribbean culture, Latino culture, very rum-based, right? So I remember I saw, I've been seeing rum since I was a tot, Yeah, right? And so (laughs) it's like a regular thing, but thinking about how it was made, where it came from, like people are really not in tune with some of those things. I mean, we are because it's part of our heritage, our family culture growing up, but a lot of people outside of that, they really don't know how many things are connected to rum. And for the majority of the mixologists that I interviewed, we spoke to that part, like how rum was so connected to family. It was uh, for medicinal purposes. It was in recipes. It was to keep duffies away when you get a new home or break ground. It was to you pour some out to pay homage for someone who passed away. And it's just a lot of all these different tiny connections to something, you know, just rum. People, oh, it's just rum. But it's not. For some people, it really holds, you know, value Spiritual. to culture and history. Yeah. Yes. So let, on the whole book itself, putting it together, that's, you co-authored it with Colin Asaya Appiah. How did you know him already? And how did that sort of partnership work? How did you collaborate on the book? So Colin is, I don't know if you ever met him in person, yes, but he yeah, is a him. very, yeah. oh, so you know Colin. Okay. Yes. So I'm saying this and you already know. He is one of the front runners, I think, in the mixology industry, especially in the sectors of culture. He is like an open book in terms of, knowing things and he his knowledge of recipes and just mixing and just on a whole is amazing and so he came in to make sure that the recipes were in order because i only drink the cocktails i don't make them (laughs) us too (laughs) so right so i feel like someone had someone with some expertise had to come in and figure out okay no this doesn't work no this doesn't work and even in interviewing him, he gave me insight into, you know, him going across to Ghana and teaching classes to people, which is very similar to what was happening, you know, back in the day, the mixologist club. So he really is like a modern day mixologist club traveling and teaching and mentoring and doing all the things to just continue to keep mixology, I guess, alive and spreading it so that people can, you know, benefit from it. I teach you, it's like, you teach someone mixology, they can either work in a bar, or open a business, or, you know, write a book or do a, you know, whatever. It opens up a lot of different doors and opportunities. So we definitely, he wrote about, he wrote half of the cocktails in the book. And we had some that the featured mixologist gave. And so he really was the balance. He's the person that makes the book taste good. I like that. That's yeah. a really without good... him, it's Without him, it's just words. It's just history words, but he definitely came in and made sure that everything was in check, in order, correct. He's a G. We love Colin. So that's great. It's really good how Mm -hmm. that partnership worked. And then, so Colin's done half of the recipes in the book, but you also have the rest are devoted to black mixologists in the States. How did you go about choosing who to feature? Long story short, again, started doing my homework And I started looking to see who's doing what in the industry. And I went and I did some research into a large cocktails 
convention and I was trying to find the black mixologist and I think I found as many I could count on my fingers. And I was like, this is interesting. But again, it lends to the narrative, right? It, the representation, while there are a lot, the representation at that level just isn't there. So Vine Pear, I believe, had done a list of Black mixologists, I think, in 2020 or was it 2020? They had done the summer before. The summer it was either 19 or 20. I stumbled upon the list and I was like, oh. So I start looking at who's on the list and I start Googling and researching who's doing what. And that's where I came across People like Tiffany Barrier and Camille Wilson and... You've got Alexis just, Brown and things yes. like that. I was just like, what? So now I'm looking again and I started reaching out to them. And then once I interviewed them, I knew that these were the people that needed to be featured in the book. Like their stories were so impactful, even as to how they got into the industry. And a lot for a lot of them, it was not intentional per se, but they were they gravitated towards it once they got their taste and then they carved their own space in it, you know, like they made it what it needs to be for them. The most interesting was Carl Franz, who was like an engineer graduating from this top college. And he did, he was doing a project with like, I think it was Coke or Pepsi. I think it was Coke. And then he was like, you know, just the mastery of, and the chemistry behind mixing the cocktails. And then he got involved in that way, started businesses and so on and so forth. And now he owns, you know, restaurants and he's making cocktails and he's doing all the things like imaginable. He has even ginger beer. He has Uncle Wakeley's too. Like, so it's not just cocktails. Like he's doing big things and all of this. And you had an engineering degree. Like, I think it's so inspiring to know that people stumble upon this industry and they find their, like their place there, their niche there. And they just grow that and make it bigger than it could ever be. And so, and he just continues to, you know, make moves and strides in the industry and make an impact. Mm, that's fantastic. So you told us about some of the bartenders featured in the book and why you've, in, why you've included them. But one of the things that we're doing with this episode, it's about Juneteenth. And it's something that we don't know that much about. So tell us a little bit about it. What does it mean to you? And what does it mean in the States? So oddly enough, I've always known about Juneteenth uh, as someone being rooted in Black culture. It's something that you speak about, you know, in household with your family. So you knew what it, we knew what it was. A few years ago, I actually was 2019. I spent Juneteenth out of middle school and it was eighth grade kids and they knew all about Juneteenth. They were immersed in it before we decided to make it a national holiday. And I'm still trying to figure out why the jump to do that. And I know it had a lot to do with what was happening, you know, in the U.S. at the time. It should have always been something that should be showcased. However, you know, just like we had to push for a day to celebrate or commemorate Martin Luther King is the same thing that was happening with Juneteenth. So Juneteenth is basically the day that commemorates the freedom after the Emancipation Proclamation was already signed. So while slaves were freed two years prior, some slaves didn't know about this until two years after. So again, that's manipulation. It's, you know, it falls in line with everything this country still has in place 
But that's basically the root of Juneteenth. So when you say celebrate Juneteenth, it's not like a greeting card holiday. It's not something where, you know, I don't think it's something that everyone should celebrate. It's really for... Acknowledgement? Acknowledgement that after all of the time or after even the time that the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and these poor, these, you know, there were people that were still under the hand of slavery because it just took that long for the news to get to them. It's something that we should commemorate and celebrate their freedom. Not every, it's not a, it's not a whole thing, right? So normally what happens is families gather because now that was families coming back together, it's prayer it's reflection. It's that type of celebrating. Like it's not greeting card holiday or, you know, I'm going to send someone a card or let me buy these Juneteenth plates or Juneteenth ice cream or anything commercial that, you know, companies are trying to make it. It's not that. If anything, if you're a company and you're really trying to commemorate Juneteenth, you want to start with educating yourself as to what it is. And then that would sort of lead the way in how you should appropriately celebrate. Maybe it's helping to elevate stories of history. Maybe it's, you know, supporting a local organization or a community center that's focused around, you know, young Black or just Black people in general. You know, finding ways to help or impact in that way versus trying to figure out how to throw a party or create some kind of sale. The Juneteenth, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for Macy's to do like a Juneteenth sale so I can lose my shit, but hopefully they won't do it. <laughs> I hope not. My God. Wow. I hope they don't do it, but I feel like that's the direction we're going. Sort of like July 4th, right? People are always like, black people celebrating July 4th. I'm like, mm, no, because technically we were still slaves. If you look at the history, who is this holiday really for? It's not for me because... My ancestors were still slaves at the time, so... It's to put it into context like that. Right. It's a very nuanced commemoration or holiday to commemorate, and you have to be very mindful of the things that you choose to elevate during that time and make sure that it's done in a way that's not distasteful. Like, I I don't think... I think last year, a few brands stepped out and tried to make, like ice cream or something like an ice cream flavor to commemorate and I'm just like why are you doing that why would you do that or like picnic like how you say like plates and tablecloths and things of the sort and I'm like yeah doesn't work doesn't work no that's not what we're doing so if you are to commemorate it with family and friends How do you commemorate it? You say with prayer, do you raise a glass of rum? Do you do, what what would you do? So for Juneteenth, the traditional drink is a red drink, like a red, if it's a cocktail, it would be a red, something red. And basically that is to, that's like a healing drink. That's what people would drink during the time to cool their bodies down as they were working out in the plantation. So it's not just about, oh, it's red. And people say it's red because of blood. And I'm like, no, it's not that. It's not that at all. So, yeah. Okay, something red. We have to remember that, Gary. Yeah, and the thing is, from just from this conversation, we're 
learning so much, which is fantastic. And just going back to what you said at the beginning about books and libraries, because as we said, we remember libraries. And it's great for us, all of us, to keep educating ourselves. So what other books would you recommend for us to look into to find out a little bit more about black mixology? Hold on, I have to think. But the thing is, if you have to think, there may not be lots, you know. Well, there isn't. That's the thing. Black Mixolence is one of the few. And I know a lot of mixologists have self-published books. So that's why if you look at it, you have to do your research to figure out where they are. But in terms of having major publishers distribute and assist with putting these books out, no. I would say Tom Bullock's recipe book, but it's not really history. It's rooted in a lot of old recipes. And it's so crazy because the recipes in there include like very not like camphor and I think like jet fuel or something like <laughs> gasoline like the ingredients I'm just like what is this even legal this was pre-prohibition you have to remember <laughs> I'm like oh my gosh is this what you guys were drinking back in the day it tells you a lot. It really does. The last question that we have for you, if we were to force you to pick one person who has contributed the most to black mixology, who would you choose and why? I'm going to go with the present and lean on my co-author. Yes. Colin. Good. Yes. <laughs> and I say that only because aside from the work that he does across the world in Ghana and just teaching people how to hone their craft. He also works very diligently here in the States with the LGBTQ community and making sure that they too are visible in the space. Because just like black and brown mixologists, a lot of those deficiencies carry over into other pockets of communities. And so making sure that everyone gets visibility in the space is super important. And his work is impactful when I mention his name, people know exactly who it is. Yes, everybody. So I think that's a testament to his influence on the industry. When they say your name and they go, oh my gosh, Colin. And then they give you like a paragraph story about something that he's either done for them or taught them how to do or an event that he's created or anything of the sort. I think that means that your impact is great. So I'm going to lean on the present and go with Colin because he's definitely one for the books and i believe he's nominated for a spirited award as a bar mentor this year at tales so hopefully you know i don't know who's listening and who can vote on this podcast but vote for Kyle. (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic absolutely brilliant thank you tamika it's been a real pleasure to meet you and to talk to you and to learn so much more so thank you for your insights Thank you for your inspiration and thank you for sharing time with us. And we hope to meet you in the flesh one day soon. Yes, I'll be across the pond very soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cocktail Lovers podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please tell your friends and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. For more details on the people, places and products mentioned today, head over to our website, thecocktaillovers.com.